This is a Scrap Studio production and you are listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. Brought to you with our sponsors Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical. Check out the amazing suite of both electrodes and implantable electronic support that our two sponsors can create and help you with your research on their websites. Cortec's website is cortec-neuro.com and Certec's website is certecped.com. And before we go any further, can I just say that scraps will always remain free, but the production of scraps is not. Therefore, we thank our supporter Professor Shadi Daye for his kind contribution. You can do the same thing if you go to our website scrapspodcast.com/donate to donate as little as $5 a month or of any currency of your choice to help us support the production of this podcast. This season we are exploring the concept of bioelectronic medicines. Scraps is your podcast where we on your behalf explore the unsaid, underappreciated stories of science that goes beyond the usual facts and convey it in a way that touches you personally. And this episode is no different. This is episode 6 of our series Scraps by Electronic Medicines and bioelectronic medicines refer to those medicines that quite literally get on your nerves. By that we mean medicines that are prescribed by a physician and are implanted or thought to use in an outpatient setting to interact with the body's nervous system that frankly is ubiquitous and controls almost every body function that you can think of. If you think that's cool, listen to this. Bioelectronic medicines are therapies that sit alongside existing molecular treatments and the world is changing so much so that the advances in engineering and biology means that these historically separate areas can now interact to create this novel and groundbreaking bioelectronic medicines. Today we are going to talk about some research pioneers. But Before we start I must warn you that some parts of the episode can be sad and distressing but this is exactly the reason why we are producing this episode So with that disclaimer let's jump straight in shall we To start we are joined by two people but before we discuss their stories let's close our eyes and imagine what comes to our minds when we say research pioneers Did you actually think of a scientist or a doctor dressed in white lab coats and working in a hospital or a benchside with lots of scientific equipment and test tubes with pipettes or biology equipment? Or did you actually think of an engineer who was tinkering with their tools or their computer? Is that what you thought? But what if we told you that in the field of healthcare there are different set of pioneers? They are the ones who put their neck out to help thousands and millions of people. They are the ones that most innovators in the traditional sense of the word work for to make their life better, to improve their so-called conditions. Did you guess it already? Yes, it's the patient. But are you wondering why I'm referring to these patients as pioneers? Well, That's the story that we are here to discuss. Our guests today are true pioneers and are paving the way for new treatments to be developed. But often the scientists and the innovators that we are, we reduce them to a data point on a graph in a journal manuscript or conference presentations. But the manner in which these wonderful people become research pioneers or chose to be exactly that is not a part of their choosing but one that is born out of necessity and this is where the field of bioelectronic medicines has needed these wonderful people to help us to work with them in an effort to help improve their lives and i think there are a lot of people who who already know your story but for for those of you who are new or are you know people who haven't had an opportunity to meet you or hear you speak or, or read any of your pieces Why don't you tell us a little bit about your 
history and how you came to be involved in the BCI community? Certainly. Um, to start, I had a spinal cord injury in June of 2010. That's Ian Burkhardt. 13 years ago now, I started to notice that my hand was shaking. And I remember specifically there was a trip that I took to Tikal, Guatemala. And it was at the end of a long day of hiking. And I looked down and I saw that my foot was shaking as well. And, but it passed pretty quickly and I didn't realize that anything was wrong at the time. That's Benjamin Stetcher. Those are the two people that we are going to hear from today. Let's go back to Ian Burkhart. I was on vacation with some friends and we were swimming in the ocean and I dove out. And a wave pushed me into a sandbar. Um, that left me with a fracture at a C5 level of an injury. And, you know, it was a really interesting experience to say the least, because I was the first person with a spinal cord injury that I had ever met. So I really had no idea what to expect, what my life was going to be like. Um, I went through some rehabilitation and kind of got back to, to living, you know, an adapted level of life. Um, but I, wasn't ready to kind of settle and be be at that level for the rest of my life. I, I knew that, you know, because I was injured at the age of 19, that I had a full life ahead of me and that something would be coming along within my lifetime to really improve that my hope quality of life. And that resolve made Ian and patients like Ian to keep looking for solutions in a way that's much more resolute than what any scientist or innovator would do. Um, so I kept asking all of my doctors and therapists at Ohio State, what can I look forward to? Is there anything that you know I can do? Um, I was looking on online at different research that was going on just to really stay informed and understand what I can look forward to, what I can have hope for. Um, and that was when there was a project already going on at Ohio State that I fit kind of all the criteria for. Um, so one of my doctors called me to come down and check out uh, their muscle stimulation device that they had for hand grasp and I started with that and then they explained to me that the real goal was to have me be able to control this myself instead of a you know technician clicking on a computer um, so it was using the brain computer interface implant that way I would think about moving my hand and the stimulation would make my hand move. And I was really excited about that because I knew after seeing the stimulation and using some functional electrical stimulation previously throughout my therapy, I knew that you know this was a way to kind of bypass the broken spinal cord and activate the muscles directly. So then if I had control over that, I could do a lot more and be a lot more independent in my everyday life. So Ian had what is referred to as a high cervical spinal cord injury that paralyzed parts of his body neck down. So now let's pan over to Benjamin, our joint guest, who noticed that his hands and legs were shaking while he was on a hike. 13 years ago now, I started to notice that my hand was shaking. And I remember specifically there was a trip that I took to Tikal, Guatemala. It was at the end of a long day of hiking. And I looked down and I saw that my foot was shaking as well. And, but it passed pretty quickly and I didn't realize that anything was wrong at the time. But looking back, I now can see that that was the first sign that something was really wrong deep in my brain. Um, four, speed ahead four years later and I was at the, a lunch table, I think, with my aunt. My aunt's an MD herself. And she saw my hand shaking and she referred me to a movement disorder specialist who diagnosed me with Parkinson's disease. That was about eight and a half years ago now, almost nine years ago. And ever since then, I've been on a kind of journey trying to figure this thing out for myself, trying to understand what is actually happening in my brain, the realities of this disease, and then trying to pick up as much neuroscience as I can along the way. Both Ian and Benjamin were young. Ian was a teenager just 
19 years old and Benjamin was in his early 30s. Yeah, I mean it was something that I would have never imagined that I would, you know, need to deal with in my lifetime to go from being a completely independent college student living on my own to now I needed help with going to the bathroom, feeding myself, um, getting dressed, getting up and pretty much doing, you know, 95% of what I needed to do within a day. I now needed assistance from that. Um, throughout some some rehab I was able to get back to the point where I was able to feed myself, but I couldn't really do any cooking. I still needed someone to help cut up my food and things like that. So I was still very dependent on other people and you know I I got used to the fact that I was in a wheelchair and that was how I was getting around and for my mobility but the hardest thing for me was not having use of my hands I had mobility through my shoulders and arms to kind of move my hands around but I couldn't do anything with my you know individual fingers or my wrists um, so I, I knew that if I could restore any bit of function there, that would really allow me to be more independent. And that's what really motivated me to look for any project I could that would restore some of that hand function. And volunteering for a clinical study when you're dealing with a life-modifying event like what Ian had because of his accident is something that we cannot even think of. But it's the will to get better and not accept the forced situation that is admirable. And I don't think any amount of appreciation will do any justice to that spirit. Here is Ian describing that journey. Yeah, it really was a a lot of a time commitment um, and a big challenge. I mean, it started even before the the brain implant, but we were doing some kind of pre-op MRI testing and you know someone asks you to think about moving your hand well you know prior to my spinal cord injury I never had to I just moved I mean yes at some point in my life I was learning how to move my body for the first time but I don't have any recollection of that and so that was the biggest challenge is really understanding okay what am I actually trying to do to make those muscles move. Um, So I had to learn kind of the language that the muscles in the body are speaking. Um, And it was extremely challenging, especially when, you know, if I'm just sitting there looking at my hand and thinking about something moving, and then I don't get any feedback of it moving. Well, am I thinking about it right? Or is is it not working or what's going on? Um, So once we had the system kind of paired together and starting to work, as soon as I got any feedback, I was able to then kind of tweak my thinking a little bit more to to make sure that, oh, okay, yeah, I am thinking about it the, the right way. I just need to concentrate a little bit harder and whatnot. But it was something that I really had to concentrate a lot on. In the beginning, I would leave, you know, we'd have sessions two to three days a week, and I would leave one of those sessions just completely drained and had, you know, mentally fatigued um, to the point where I didn't really want to do anything else because I had spent so much time just concentrating on, you know, individual finger movement or opening and closing my hand. Are you curious about Benjamin's story? So, yeah, so I was 29 when I was diagnosed. I was living and working in China. I was trying to build a big education company out there. It was based in Shanghai, but I was on the road constantly going from one city to the next in China. Um, and But I soon realized, because of a lot of the learning that I was doing and a lot of the research that I was taking part in, that China was not going to be a great place for me to live long term. So at 31 or 32, I think, I decided to come home and really delve into this full time. Um, actually, part of the impetus was the birth of my nephew as well. Um, so that also prompted me to come home when I did. But I've since, and he's now almost five and a half, I guess, so I can time it directly based on uh, his um, his life, really, uh, which is kind of neat. Didn't really think about that before, but yeah. Uh, but anyways, um, so for the past six years, I've traveled the world. I've gone to well over probably a hundred different medical labs or uh, companies or 
places that um, or patient organizations, just places that have some kind of expertise in Parkinson's diseases. And I've tried to learn as much as I can from, you know, some of the world's greatest minds in this field. However, I did learn along the way that um, both some good things and some bad things, obviously. But I, I really came to grapple with just how little we really know about the brain and neuroscience in general. And that was not an easy thing to like kind of really take it to heart. But it was important along the way. I also kind of realized though that the people who are best suited to help me and the people that were, um, you know, kind of best positioned to give me some, to offer me something very tangible were all right here in my hometown in Toronto. I traveled the world, but in the end I realized that I didn't have to go very far to get the treatment that I needed. However, along the way I became kind of an advocate and I became pretty well known in this specific community. And now, you know, at the beginning I was getting like, I was sending like 10 emails for every one that I got back to experts. Now it's kind of the opposite where I get like more emails than I can actually keep up with now. So Benjamin and Ian were both very keen on knowing more and in understanding what needed to be done to get themselves to a position of helping themselves. Both sought out people in their local medical centers. And in the case of Ian, it was more easier. Ian comes from Columbus, Ohio. So he went straight to the Ohio State University and sought out help from his physician and prodded them and willed them into looking for options to help him. On the other hand, Benjamin travelled to many different places and in the end found help locally at Toronto, his hometown. But before we go any further, let's understand a bit about the standard of care that these two gentlemen experienced for their conditions. You already heard from Ian, our guest with spinal cord injury, that he was offered rehab and with that he was able to get some function until his shoulder. But dexterity in his hands and fingers were absent. Here is Ian again. Yeah, after trying the muscle stimulation for a while, that was when the idea of the brain-computer interface was introduced to me. And, you know, prior to that, I had heard of the BrainGate projects that have been done at other institutions, um, but I didn't really know what all involved. Um, you know, and, and Dr. Rezai explained things to me pretty matter of fact in the sense that, yes, we will be, you know, placing an array on the surface of your brain that will allow us to record the signals uh, for when you're thinking about moving your hand. Um, and the computer will be able to translate that into something that the stimulation can understand to trigger it being on and off um, as a way to bridge the damaged spinal cord. And, you know, that was something that really was exciting to me. It was challenging, you know, to wrap my head around it because I didn't know this space at all. Um, but I felt very comfortable with the whole team. Um, you know, at that point, it was Chad Bouton who was working at Patel, um, who was really leading the muscle stimulation and the algorithm side. Um, and Dr. Rezai at Ohio State, um, I felt really comfortable in the fact that it would be safe for me to participate in this and do the surgery. I kind of joked sometimes that this is a, a more simple brain surgery than what Dr. Rezai was doing you know, routinely with deep brain stimulation. Um, so that put me a little bit at ease. And then I knew that, you know, everything that Chad and his team were doing with the muscle stimulation and the algorithm side, that it would work because I didn't want to, you know, have the surgery and then the system not actually be able to, to work. So I felt really comfortable that there was a good chance for success. And, you know, I, at the end of the day, I was just really glad to have that opportunity. And I felt like I, I almost had to say yes, because, you know, there's another me in a different part of the country that didn't have this opportunity, um, but is really hoping for, you know, this type of science to progress and be able to help individuals with spinal cord injuries in the future. For me, I did receive quite a bit of pushback from some family and friends. Uh, and rightfully so, because the treatment of care, or kind of the, the current treatment of care at the time of my spinal cord injury would not 
have involved anything of the sorts of having a brain computer interface put in place. Um, you know, and that was the big reservation for my family and friends that said, well, you know, you just went through this huge life changing accident a couple years ago. Are you sure you want to subject yourself to a brain surgery that you don't need? And it had no, you know, guarantee that it would improve my quality of life. Most likely it really wouldn't because being a clinical trial was only something I would have access to inside the lab. And, you know, so that, that was a big pushback. Um, but I didn't see it as that big of a challenge because I knew after meeting with the team that I was in good hands and that we had a high probability of success. As well as I really knew that, you know, this was a good tipping point for the future to really get this type of technology into the hands of more people if it was, you know, successful. So I was able to kind of settle all those risks with just knowing that it was worth it to me because I could potentially help myself and others down the road. You're presented with the opportunity and um, to to get an an implant, and you decide to move forward. I'm sure that was an an easy decision, but you know your commitment to it is really impressive, and and I'm sure so many people are grateful for it. But it's not like they placed the electrode, hooked everything up, and turned on a machine, and everything worked all of a sudden. That was a lot of training that went involved. So can you kind of walk us through what the what the progression was? And and I know, I mean, you were a full-time job participating in research. Yeah, there was a great evolution across, you know, the system from how it works from when I first started to, you know, when we got a couple years in. Um, because like I mentioned earlier, it was challenging for me to think about opening and closing my hand or or moving an individual finger. Um, but once I got a little bit of that feedback, it helped me understand what I was doing and if I was thinking about it the right way. Um, so that's kind of me updating my kind of internal algorithm in my brain of how I'm controlling this. But at the same time, the decoders and the algorithm on the computer that's processing all the information was getting updated. Um, so it was kind of a cat and mouse game where I would, I might try something and it, it would work and kind of, or the decoder would work a little bit better in one way and kind of figuring out how we can really be at the same level um, to be, you know, as accurate as possible. Um, and, you know, it got to the point where after some time of practice of me, you know, understanding exactly what I needed to think about. I didn't have to concentrate as hard, you know, to do something simple like opening and closing my hand. Um, if it was something that was, I was holding on to an object, I still had to concentrate pretty hard uh, because I didn't have the feedback coming back into my body that I was touching it um, from the lack of sensation. So I had to really rely on that visual sense um, to make sure that I still had a grip on the object. But it was really kind of that balancing act of what am I changing? What is the computer changing? And how is that going to you know, work the best to have the highest level of accuracy? I know you went through a lot of tasks that we take for granted every day. The, credit, the pinch for the credit card swipe, the stirring of the straw. The story that I always use when people ask what I do, I say, well, I work in neurotech. And they're like, oh, what's that? And I'm like, one of the coolest things that, that I've had a chance to be um, close to is this this gentleman with a, a brain-computer interface who has been paralyzed and has had um, such limited function available. He's now able to play Guitar Hero with single-digit dexterity, and everybody just kind of goes, "Ooh, ah, that's so cool!" Um, so, but those are, like I said, those those movements are things that we take for granted. We don't we don't think about it. It just happens, like you said prior to your injury. Um, what was what was the coolest thing that you were able to achieve? Yeah, so the Guitar Hero task, I think, was really exciting because it was a little bit more fun. Um, but 
I don't necessarily think it was the coolest task that we were able to achieve. I was a lot more focused on kind of those practical things um, that I could easily see would translate to outside of the lab. Um, I liked playing Guitar Hero because it was fun, it was challenging and entertaining, and it really showed that we were able to do individual finger flexion. Um, also, it showed that you know the system was able to work quick enough so that I had that kind of sense of agency and control um, to, to hit the notes as they're coming down the screen. Um, but I, I really enjoyed just the task of where I'm reaching out, picking up a bottle, pouring that what's in that bottle, setting the bottle back down, and then using a smaller grip to stir what we poured out of that bottle. Um, because that translated to me into my everyday life of, okay, now I can go get myself a drink. I can be able to pick up, you know, a small package or a piece of paper with a, that smaller grip. And to me, that translates into independence, which is um, paramount for me and anyone after a spinal cord injury. And now let's move to Benjamin. As you know, Benjamin was diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's in his early 30s. Let's listen to his patient um, journey. So the standard uh, care, I think I have it right behind me actually. You can see, I don't know if you can see it there. It's levodopa, carbidopa. Um, essentially it's like a little yellow pill that I had to take before. I was taking almost 600 milligrams per day. I'm down to like 75 milligrams now, but Every two or three hours, I'd have to pop one of those ye yellow pills. But then, then the journey would really begin for me on that day. Because what happens is you have these fluctuating on-off periods. Because the half-life is like 90 minutes for levodopa, I think. So what that means is that you have these spikes, these crazy spikes and these crazy drop-offs that fluctuate through the entire day. And my whole day was based on trying to ride those waves. And as my disease progressed and as things carried on, those on-off fluctuations became worse and worse and worse and more and more debilitating as well. Um, what that did in practical terms, or what that allowed, that only gave me like an hour window basically, where I was like in that sweet spot kind of between on and off periods. And remember, this is like throughout the day as well, so it wasn't just like an hour at one time, it was like 20 minutes here, 10 minutes here, 5 minutes here, or whatever it might be, where I'd actually be able to be productive as well. Unlike Ian, Benjamin wasn't going to give up. He was curious to understand why these fluctuations of dopamine mimic. Levodopa was happening. And then I would go around and I'd ask people, like experts, like, okay, why is this the case? And why don't we have anything better yet? And they just kind of throw up their hands and say, oh, I don't know. Or they'd say like, or because, uh, I mean, it's a six-year-old drug. Um, it was discovered in the 1960s. I think, or it was first uh, brought to the mass market in the 1960s. And, um, we don't really have anything better since, except for DBS, which was approved in the late 90s for Parkinson's disease and other conditions as well. However, it was not the only thing that I was grappling with at the time either. I had other options available to me because of kind of my standing in this community. There was gene therapy, stem cell therapy, a new kind of infusion pump for levodopa, and um, focus ultrasound as well. So then I had the kind of almost impossible task of trying to figure out which of those five or six therapies was going to be the best one for me specifically. And one thing I came to realize about Parkinson's disease is that it's very much a myth. There's no such thing called Parkinson's disease. There's nothing that I can point to in my brain and say, oh yeah, that's Parkinson's. Because every person who I've ever seen and every patient who I've ever come across experiences a little bit differently. The symptoms manifest themselves slightly differently in every person as well. So it's kind of a misnomer in some ways to call it a disease. Um, however, I did come to know this one man, his name is Alberto Espe, over at the University of Cincinnati. And working with him, I, I went down to Cincinnati for almost six months. This was right before the pandemic. And then the pandemic struck and that all went to hell, but whatever. It's a story for another time, I guess. Um, but through him, I was able to kind of pinpoint and isolate more specifically what I had and working with my own doctor here, Dr. Alfonso Fasano. In my opinion, they're two of the best in the whole world. And together, we kind of came, three of us kind of came to a realization that what I have is something called nigrostriatal degeneration, which is basically a very specific form of Parkinson's. It's kind of like the classical or typical form of the disease. However, for now anyways, it's been basically just isolated to the motor segment of my brain. And that's also why DB I'm such like a perfect candidate for DBS as well. So that's how I, kind of a roundabout way I, I came to actually deciding that 
DBS was the right thing for me. And then on top of all that was the adaptive stuff and this new cool technology as well. But again, can't really say too much about that right at this moment. I'm sure that sounded like fun to you. The non-Parkinsonian individual who leads a relatively normal life and you don't have to deal with issues like what Benjamin has to deal with. And as a result, the support structure has become incredibly important for people like Benjamin. You heard about Ian's experience and decision-making and how he was able to talk through his options that he had with his family. Let's listen to Benjamin. And Benjamin highlighted some interesting side effects, however unintended it might be, speaks to how researchers in the future need to optimize the manner in which they stimulate the brain region for Parkinson's treatment. So you're you're both you're both have put yourself sought out and put yourselves in this sweet spot of research and and your conditions at the time have have made you ideal candidates for your respective therapies. So you you were able to go through the process and come to the decision that this was the right move for you. I'm sure that there was a lot of um input feedback concern, maybe some pushback from family and friends. I mean, this sounds to a lot of people who haven't immersed themselves in this area, putting chips in your brain sounds like a crazy idea. I mean, you know, if you're not thinking about it, it just, it sounds really foreign. Um, So were there, were there any pushback in your lives or was it just smooth sailing and you had support all around? Um, so it was relatively smooth for me. I mean, I've always had like a very good family environment to come home to. My parents have always been very supportive of everything that I've done throughout my life. However, and like, I have like a lot of medical people in my family as well that I could count on that I could ask questions to, but still nobody really understood the brain or or neuroscience at all. Nobody that I knew anyway, or that I was close to from like my family. And along the way, ever since my procedure, there's been like weird things that have happened as well. Weird, like, personality twerks have come up, or ticks have come up with me. And in some subtle ways, my personality has changed in ways that were unexpected. However, as much as I try to, like, prepare everyone around me to expect the unexpected, um, you know, you never know exactly what that's going to be like, so how can you actually prepare for that at the end of the day? Um, and I'm happy to talk about those as well, like, things like... I- I've gone through some episodes of, that some people would call mania, or some manic episodes as well. Some things that I still experience from time to time here and there whenever we like whenever I go back to the clinic usually and have to tweak something, I usually get that like rush of like happiness and the euphoria that often an elation that comes with mania often. And as a result, you know, I've I've had that clinical label put on me. Euphoria due to mania. Is that what you heard too? Let's hear more. So there's definitely an arrogance, I mean it's hard for me to describe it accurately myself and be objective about this whole thing because I kind of have to try and get outside of myself and then get back and, and try to observe myself through the eyes of others. But whenever I try and do that, I can see why it comes off as being arrogant or dogmatic sometimes or just the sense that I kind of know better than other people as well about what's happening in my brain. So it was very much a bet that me and my neurologist made and some other doctors that I work here with that this was the right thing for me because we knew what was wrong. We thought we knew what was wrong, but we weren't for sure. We, no one could tell me for sure what was wrong with me. The only way we would actually know is once we turn on this adaptive device and then we would see if there's benefits or not compared to the either continuous CBS or just compared to the standard line of therapy. And so far, you know, all of our bets were proven right. I mean, uh, thus far, we, we were pretty confident, I think, that we know now that adaptive DVS is a thing for me, and we know why as well. I've written about that before, so I think I can say like, pretty openly that, um, or I can talk a little bit about the neuroscience if you want me to. And the beauty of it all is the ability of Benjamin to work with his neurologist and try to work with his doctor as a team, even when they didn't have an answer. And if you think about this, that's remarkable. We, in our minds, probably have a stereotype that most patients will look for ways to get better and will spend all the time online and in forums to get the help that they need and assess options. But the story of Ian and Benjamin reveals a deeper human urge. 
the urge to push the boundaries of science for themselves as subjects in a trial, but also as researchers asking questions, prodding their physicians to help push for answers to those questions that they don't have an answer themselves, while trying to subject themselves to the unknown. It's almost the thrill of a sports person who will subject themselves to the unknown adventure without knowing the outcome. But in this case, it wasn't out of design, but out of profound curiosity of a situation that was forced on them. And for us, that's why we call them research pioneers. Here is Benjamin again. We asked Benjamin to explain to us as he understood what deep brain stimulation means. And more importantly, he was part of Medtronic's clinical trial for a technology called adaptive brain stimulation technology. So instead of us trying to explain it, let's ask the research pioneer himself to explain it to us. So actually, to me, it's simple though. It's really, I think of my cells in my brain and the cells in other people's brains like any other living thing on this earth. To survive, everything needs to be able to communicate, meaning they have to be able to send signals out into the world and receive them back and have their behavior changed based on the signals that they receive into their, you know, through their senses or whatever, however they get those signals. Now, that's why I think adaptive DBS is better than the continuous DBS. Continuous DBS was very much just a dumb machine that was just sending these electrical pulses through my brain at a steady rate, at a fixed rate as well. So there's no adaption going on. However, everything else in my brain is adapting to its environment. Every cell in my brain is responding and giving feedback as well to its surrounding cells. Suddenly, there's this continuous, under the old settings, under the continuous DBS settings, there's this thing implanted into its environment and it's not actually responding anymore either. It's just kind of sending out these constant signals. However, now it's actually responding to the signals that it gets from my brain. It's responding for the most part to the beta waves that it's receiving and then it's able to you know, adapt accordingly. However, that's still not the preferred method, I think, going forward. I think in the future, this will be a little way away, but we'll need something that's more physiologically like a neuron. So it'll have to be much thinner and much more, and it'll have much more arborization. Like you'll have to be able to like connect to many more things as well. Because right now it's basically just like a straw. It's two straws in my brain kind of thing. But at the end of the day, what we really need is something that looks and feels more like, like the rest of the environment in the brain which I think will come along at some point once we have these graphene technologies and that once those uh, progress to a point where we're able to actually implant them in people. Because, um, yeah, then it'll look and feel much more like a neuron and then hopefully at that point as well, if we can combine it with the adaptive system. So here's what I envision in the future is that, like the STN, for example, which is where mine is, the subthalamic nucleus, which is deep inside my basal ganglia, it looks almost like an olive or like a walnut, or like a, it's like that kind of shape. It's much smaller, it's about six millimeters wide. What will happen in the future is we'll, we'll stick one of these electrodes onto the surface of it, and then inside the electrode itself will be the graphene tips that will be able to innervate, which means it'll be able to like extend through into the target area. However, each one will be guided by its own nanorobots as well, or guided by some kind of machine learning algorithm, or guided by something or other. And so it'll, like, it'll literally arborize through the area, through the target area, and spread evenly to the areas it's actually needed. Because right now it's still kind of a blunt instrument in my brain. Even though it's kind of adapting to some of the signals that it's getting anyways. There's a lot more signals that it could be adapting to for one. And two, it's just like a, it's like a straw that's just puncturing the whole area. And what we really need is something that can look and feel, again, not sound like a broken record, but to look and feel much more like a neuron if it's ever going to actually do what a neuron is supposed to do. Or what uh, some of the things that it's supposed to do anyways. So I think I really like the the adaptive DBS as a differentiator. And Ian, I think too, when we get into um, restoring sense of touch into um, into programs like yours, that will be the the a parallel version of closing the loop there, getting that feedback. So instead of the Benjamin, as you call them, the dumb devices, where it's one direction, it's one person standing up at the front of the room giving a speech. And with the adaptive DBS and with restoring sensation, you're making that more of a two-way conversation. Although today where we are with a limited vocabulary 
And as those technologies improve and um, become more fine-tuned, like the neuronal model, it'll be a conversation with a, a very broad vocabulary available between the speakers. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, one thing I want to find out about both of you is you, you've chosen not only to participate in clinical trials, but you're both very outspoken advocates for your respective conditions and diseases and, and patient outreach, advocating for clinical trials, advocating for support uh, for clinical trial participants. Um, what, what are you each working on in those areas? And um, Ian, I'll, I'll start with you. I really saw the great responsibility and opportunity that I had after being a part of this clinical trial, uh, because it was an N of one study, I wanted to be able to share my experience as much as possible. And that only furthered the kind of advocacy that I was already doing um, for, you know, helping individuals with spinal cord injuries um, from being a peer mentor and being involved in local kind of support groups um, to the point where, you know, now I'm working with the North American Spinal Cord Injury Consortium as their vice president. And we work on really involving stakeholders in research to make sure that the research that's done is going to benefit us, um, making sure that there's individuals with lived experience kind of in the room where these changes are happening so that, you know, at the end of the day, the research is getting the best kind of bang for their buck um, to make sure that, you know, there's going to be changes that are, are positive and they'll be actually adapted or adopted by the community um, to make sure that it's going to improve their quality of life versus just being something that, you know, the general population might think individuals with spinal cord injuries want. Benjamin is a vocal proponent for Parkinson's research and to increase patient voices to advocate for better treatments. Benjamin is very active in this area and has co-authored a book with Dr. Alberto Espe titled Brian Fables, The Hidden History of Neurodegenerative Diseases. You will find the link to the book in the episode description. Just a week after the recording, Benjamin was announced as the chair of patient advisory group to a digital data startup that is mining brain recordings from patients implanted with deep brain stimulation devices to better understand pathology and to improve therapy. We covered this last year when Rune Labs, the startup that Benjamin is working with, first came out of stealth. And you can find the link to that episode in the description below, where Jojo interviews Brian Pepin. Brian Pepin was my former colleague while working for Gilvani Bioelectronics and he was working for Verily. And he is now the CEO of Rune Labs. Whenever we have a discussion like this, Jojo and I usually have a very freewheeling discussion, but the interaction between Ian and Benjamin became extremely collegial and we decided to just sit back and let them take over. Here is the abridged version of that interaction. Ian, can I ask maybe a direct question at you? Because in the Parkinson's community anyway, there's a lot of stigma around this disease, and it's usually you know an older person's disease, which is why people like me and others in my community, especially the young onset community, have had a very difficult time having our voices heard by pharma, by government, by everyone really that's involved in the field. And I'm wondering like what advice you might have to us or like, or what have your experiences been? Like, how have you actually gotten your foot in the door and have you actually gotten people to actually listen to you and start taking you a little bit more seriously? But one of the things I want to mention, I don't know if it's the case in spinal cord injuries as much, although it might be, is that, you know, in Parkinson's is also the cognitive decline that a lot of people experience. However, that's less prevalent in the young onset community and it's something that's not very well known or studied, really. Um, so again, I, the same question is about um, how, how, how did you get your voices heard? And how do you overcome some of those barriers or challenges that you face? Along the way. Yeah, I think there's a big challenge, you know, within the community itself of spinal cord injuries because it's not a degenerative disease. You know, you kind of you have your your spinal cord injury, you go through rehabilitation, and you're kind of just now into this new normal 
and your life can continue just fine. You know, the secondary complications and things like that aren't nearly as bad as they used to because we're, you know, just getting proper medical care. Um, there's some things that go along with, you know, aging with a spinal cord injury that are a little bit more challenging um, than the general population. But from a, a large stance, you know, your life isn't going to continue to get worse. Um, so there's a lot of people that are just fine with it and don't want to challenge that status quo to improve their quality of life anymore um, as long as it's not, you know, getting worse and worse, you know, each year, each week or month. Um, so I think some of the things that we've been able to do to combat that is really leveraging a lot of the technology that's now available into the point where, you know, you can show that, hey, individuals with spinal cord injuries can live much longer lifespans. Um, but with that, you need to be able to stay healthier. You need to be able to do more for yourself. Um, and that has you know, helped get the community a little bit more involved. But, you know, honestly, I think there's just groups of people who are more interested in, you know, wanting to improve their quality of life versus being okay with where they're at um, and kind of settling with their their condition or whatever their circumstances may be. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's so much apathy in, in Parkinson's fields or Alzheimer's or any of these neurodegenerative diseases where people just feel like it's a death sentence or they just kind of succumb to the whole disease themselves. Glad to hear that not, doesn't sound like it's quite as prevalent in other disease areas or in, or in brain uh, spinal cord stimulation injuries, but um, it's something that's just very difficult for me as like an advocate to try and instill in other people. Like, How do you get people to stop being so apathetic about their conditions and get them to see that maybe that there's, you know, a rainbow around the corner. Maybe it's my own lived experience that at the end of the day will be like the thing that might prop up other people. But I also know that, you know, these, these, this is a very expensive procedure that I went through. Not, it's not gonna be available to everybody. Also because I'm Canadian, that's a big part of the reason why it was available to me. Um, and also because I'm such like a vocal advocate. So if you're not in the position that I'm in, it's frankly unaffordable for 99.99999 repeating percent of people. So, I, I don't even know if I can be an example in that sense as well for others, but you know, we'll all do it. I, I hear exactly what you're saying, Benjamin. Um, you know, I mean, the treatment that I was able to get, I was really looking, you know, looking for anything because my insurance cut off the amount of care that I was already receiving and said, okay, well, you've kind of made all the progress we think someone in your condition is going to make. So, Go live your life. Tough luck. Um, and I was just looking for a little bit more. And, you know, I was luckily in the right place at the right time to be involved in this study. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, if you have that opportunity to to use, use a device or to get implanted with anything, go for it because you're only going to help the scientific community learn more about how these devices work, what, you know, specific indications they can be used for. And overall, that's going to be able to grow the market and, you know, hopefully drive down that price or open up reimbursement models so that more people have access to these types of care. Yeah, and I agree. I'm sorry for taking over Jojo and Aaron, but I have another question that I'd love to ask them. I, I agree completely there, but this... How do I put this? But like the scientific community, sometimes they're not the easiest people to work with, for one. They're not usually the most outspoken individuals. They're not always the most talkative. Or, frankly, and this is kind of a sensitive subject, but they're also just people who have their own interests as well. Like they're humans like everybody else. And that's why we have things like aducaminab, uh, which is the latest drug from Biogen, and why it's such a. <laughs> without, I'm trying not to swear, but it's like. But yeah, I mean. Those vested interests, like everyone comes with these preconceived notions into these disease areas. And oftentimes the people who are actually in position to make change, they're the ones that study this 40 years ago or 30 years ago. So they still use the same textbooks from 30 or 40 years ago. And they, they have a hard time, one, keeping up to date with everything that's going on in today's research. And two, opening the doors for younger scientists or younger researchers to maybe people who have like new ideas that can actually make a difference. So I'm wondering if you have like any insight there as to how actually to push the levers or to like, get people to 
put their egos aside and just get us all to work for the common good. Benderman, I would definitely agree. There's a lot of times where you have a lot of resistance in that old guard of, you know, the individuals that have been doing research in these fields for a long time um, of really challenging the status quo and changing things that, but at the same time, you know, if they were right, then they shouldn't even be studying things anymore because they would have it all figured out. Um, So I think one of the things that the North American Spinal Cord Injury Consortium does really well is getting in with early career researchers um, to make sure that they understand the need for involving individuals with lived experience in their research um, to make sure that, you know, these are going to be problems that, you know, are severe enough to really need to be studied versus something that, you know, the community may not actually care about. Um, so I, I really think that that's one way we've been able to to challenge that a little bit more. But really just with anyone, you know, asking, you know, why is something done that way? And, you know, why, what if we did this? What if we did that? But you do hit a lot of resistance, especially when you're up against kind of some of those, those large institutions. Um, in the spinal cord injury field, you know, we don't really have any pharmaceuticals that were... Um, that are used. So there's really not that big pushback of, oh, we, we developed this drug that costs a lot of money to develop, but if we can have people who stay on it for the rest of their lives, that, that makes us a lot of money. So there's, there's a big challenge in that, um, I can see. But, you know, I think it's really just keeping, keeping your foot down and pushing on improving the level of care and what can improve the quality of life for someone with a disability. Um, yeah. And on that, yeah. no, but th- th- that's a great comment to make. And there's something else I'd like to add on top. Hi. So yeah, something else I'd love to add on top of that is just that um, this need to actually bring in more people from outside the field as well. And to bring in specialists of all different kinds into these fields as well. Cause as Jojo was just alluding to, there's never going to be a cure for these diseases until we actually figure out what's going on deep inside of a person's brain for one. And that's going to take years and decades and decades and decades and decades until we really get there, I think. Because of the complexity of the organ, we can't access the tissue and all sorts of other reasons. So until then, we need to bring in as many disciplines as possible. For example, I don't want to endorse this, pro- this company in any way, but I think they've made a wonderful product for physiotherapy in particular. Uh, every day now, I put on these things and I do about 12 rounds of VR boxing. This is a Quest 2 device. Um, I'm not going to put it on right now, but it's really an amazing tool. And I see a lot of potential to actually bring computer science majors into this field now to help people like myself to actually get up and do something now. Because one of the biggest problems that people with Parkinson's have is that apathy that I mentioned before. And what this can do is actually drive people and because there's only one thing that is disease modifying and one thing that's been proven disease modifying in the whole field of Parkinson's and that's exercise. How we're getting like an older stubborn man to exercise can be a very tricky thing. If anyone's ever tried to do that before, it's very difficult to actually get somebody to actually take the time to exercise for themselves. But, you know, maybe if you can entice them in other ways or give them different kinds of exercise modalities like this one, who knows, maybe that'll be the trick that actually gets more people to do the things that we know are beneficial for everyone. And finally, we want to let you go with these two messages. A stern message of life from both Ian and Benjamin. And hopefully, it helps us understand a bit more deeper as to how much these individuals contribute to making their lives and others to do more and to feel better and to live a life that is fulfilling while appreciating and coming to terms with what they have to deal with. Be it a twist of fate, or destiny, or frankly, genetic mutations. Yeah, so I I think there's kind of two big takeaways there. You know, for me, I never wanted my injury to define my life, at least early on. And now I look back and think how, you know, stupid that was because... You know, it's something that is so defining in my life that, 
and you know having my eyes open to this field is really something that I I have to be involved with now because I I don't really have a choice. I I saw a quote one time that I really, you know, resonated with and it was I'm not a disability advocate because I want to be. I'm a disability advocate because I have to be. And you know that highlights the fact that there's not enough people that understand the challenges that individuals with disabilities go through on a day-to-day basis um, to really change things. So you need those who are living it to to speak louder and speak up and and share their experiences. Um, the other side of you know being having gone through the the research that I was able to participate in. Um, it really didn't change me uh, because, like I said earlier, I kind of tried to compartmentalize. Um, you know, when I had use of my hand through the device in the lab to when I would be disconnected and go home, but it did change. You know, other aspects of my life as far as being able to participate in things like this, um, but also, you know, physically it allowed me to essentially have a lot more occupational therapy and physical therapy of, you know, just moving blocks around on a table and learning how to move the other muscles that I had to, um, you know, in my shoulder and things like that in order to move my hand. So I've gained a lot more coordination there and that's enabled me to do more things on my own and, and live, you know, a little bit more independently than I was able to you know, if I wasn't involved in the trial. Um, yeah, very similar experience, I would say. Well, similar and different because it's, you know, the brain is a very complicated thing and each person kind of gets affected by it in different ways. But um, yeah, I would say that also, just to kind of tack on to Ian's point there, that our community, every kind of brain disease community is very different as well. However, there's shared lessons across the groups that I'm sure we can all learn from. I'm sure that there are things that we could be doing better together than we could be doing in silos right now. And it's a mistake on our part, I think, to kind of continue the same silos that were kind of preordained for us by the neuroscientists, or by the neurologists, I should say, as well. I mean, why am I a Parkinson's disease advocate when that word, for one, doesn't have a lot of meaning for me, and two, some of these experiences like Ian might be more resonant with me, than, you know, the typical 65-year-old person with Parkinson's, or who gets diagnosed with Parkinson's, I should say. So, yeah, just on that, I guess I just want to say thank you, Ian, for showing, for sharing your story as well. And, um, yeah, let's see, maybe in the future, hopefully, by building these bridges and by connecting these kinds of disparate groups together, we can come up with better solutions for everybody and, at the end of the day, help more people live a better life or help the next generation at least uh, live a better life than, than we were able to. I'll tell you one thing that that I have learned, and I have more um, connection to the BCI um, community rather than the DBS field and the, my Parkinson's experiences years ago. But one of the things, and, and we do benefit from this field having um, a strong injection of youth, um, and it's a it's a younger field than DBS in general. So there's there's that infusion of invigoration. But the other thing that I find very important, I try and do this as much as possible, and poor Ian bears the brunt of it because I'm always like, hey, Ian, you want to come talk to this group for me? But having that connection, so many, especially of the young researchers, don't have the ability to be in touch with a person who's actually benefited from these technologies. And having that inspiration of not only what you guys have done, but then also listening to what matters to you so like Ian said, playing Guitar Hero, yeah, that was a media blitz and that was great, but that's not what is functionally important to you. Pouring a beer, on the other hand, has far more immediate need and benefit. So it's engaging with the, the patient pioneers and the research pioneers like, like you guys is inspirational, not only to reconnect to why are you doing this research, but then to also better understand what are the things that matter to you. If we're not going to cure this whole um, condition or disease, what can I do to contribute to incremental improvement that matters to you specifically? That's, that's the tool I use. 
So that's the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. All materials presented in this podcast is a property of scraps and should only be reproduced after permission from Arun Sridhar or Jojo Platt. Don't forget to support us on our donation page of our website scrapspodcast.com forward slash donate. The show was created and produced by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Arun Sridhar performed the edits and jointly worked with our sound engineer, Mr. Swaminathan Tiringyana Sambandham for sound design. Finally, a big thanks to Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical for supporting this season of Scraps by Electronic Medicines. <laughs>